Today's scripture reading is from Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Judy, you're going to preach with me. Yeah, you're going to have to do something with this guy. Lord. Um, little guy's not feeling good this morning. Uh, can I pray for us? And, um, and then we will jump into both Luke 1 and a little bit of Luke 2 as well. Uh, so, Father, we are grateful for you. And like Amanda said, nobody likes change. Uh, but we also acknowledge that your church is your people. Uh, people that has been set apart for the sake of all those that have not experienced your grace and your goodness in your family. We know that we exist to bless people whether or not they come into this space and place. And so if there are ways that we can do that better, you speak to us about it, Lord. Today, uh, you make a promise that says where two or more people gather in your name, you're present. And so we want to be present to that presence, God. We want to be open to what you're doing. We love you. And in this Advent season, we wait And we wait to celebrate what you have done in the past in your birth, but we also wait in anticipation of the day where you make all things new. That's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. And we we hate waiting for things. We don't like it. We don't like to wait. Humanity doesn't like to wait. It's just one of those things. And so we're going to, and I want to show you this, I want to illustrate this, and so we're going to play a little game this morning. Um, The game is how long... um, How long can an average American wait in these different scenarios before they lose their ever-loving mind? Okay, this is the game. And so, let let me give you the first scenario. How long do you think the average American will wait in line for a coffee at Starbucks before they lose their ever loving mind and walk right out the door? Throw it out there. 30 minutes? What kind of patience do you have? Good Lord. 
Five minutes. The answer, seven minutes. Seven minutes before a person will walk out. That is the average time. How long do you think the average person waits for another to get ready for a night out on the town before their attitude drastically changes about that person? Fifteen minutes. Rick, fifteen? Twenty-one minutes. Twenty-one minutes. It's not bad. How long does the average person wait until they shush that couple at the movie theater that continues to talk aloud? Two minutes, 30 seconds. Brian, what you got? 45 seconds. One minute and 52 seconds is the average time before somebody loses their mind. Last one. How? I love it. it. We just did this at Sunnyside, too, and there's always like three people that play. And the rest just are just sitting there stoked. Last one. How long will one wait for a red light before they lose their ever-loving mind and slip into some road rage? Two seconds. Two? Anybody else? Gus? 130, 50 seconds, 50 seconds. Americans spend an estimated 37 billion hours waiting in line each year. Few things inspire as much universal frustration as long queues and lengthy wait times. Many of us, including myself, even struggle waiting for that sluggish web browser that doesn't load. In fact, one scientist, computer scientist, said internet users were willing to be patient on average for two seconds while waiting for an online video to load. Two seconds. After five seconds, the abandonment rate is 25%. One out of four of us is like, yeah, this is a waste of my life. After five seconds. After 10 seconds, half are gone. We don't like to wait. We want it all. We want it now, which is why we've created apps to zap as much wait time as humanly possible with the mundane everyday tasks, like shopping, which, by the way, Aldi now delivers to your door. Transportation, paying bills, even stuff as significant as dating, we want it all. We want it fast. We will not wait. Since the technological uh, revolution of 2007, as the world was introduced to the smartphone, our ability to wait as human beings or our attention span has continued to decrease year after year. Today, right now, this moment, the human attention span is eight seconds. The attention span of a goldfish is nine. We have now lost to a goldfish. I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. We hate waiting. And so the question is why? Why do we hate to wait? We got answers. One is we're busy. We are, this is like call and response. Church, all of a sudden, I've been gone for like four weeks, and here's what we're doing. Okay. Here's the first reason. One, the city communicates we are what we do. The city communicates we are what we do. Whether you're walking into a networking meeting, whether you're walking into a lunch, maybe you're dropping your kindergartner off, you, you introduce people this way. You tell them your name, and then the very next thing you do within the first minute is you tell them what they do. You ask what they do. You tell them what you do. We're defined by what we do. Right, we produce. We create. That's what shows our significance, or at least that's what we think in the city of New York. And so as we wait, we're usually not producing. As we wait, we're usually not being promoted. As we wait, we're usually not progressing. And because of it, in our minds and in our hearts, we lose significance. We don't like to wait. But the second thing is we're fearful of what might happen in the future. Henri Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. He says, one of the most pervasive feelings in and around us is fear. People are afraid. They're afraid of inner feelings. They're afraid of other people. And also afraid of the future. 
Fearful people have a hard time waiting. When we're afraid, we want to get away from where we currently are, but if we cannot flee, we may fight instead. And so many of our destructive acts come from the fear that something harmful might happen to us in the future. Not just individually, he writes, but whole communities and nations are afraid of being harmed. This is what lies at the root of what he calls the first strike approach to others. It's what we see with a lot of the countries and nations, the most powerful nations in the world. People who live in a world of fear are more likely to make aggressive, hostile, and destructive responses to, than those who are not frightened. And this is why, or at least one of the reasons why it's so hard to wait. It's also something we see early on in the scripture. A real king at a real point in time named King Herod. Upon hearing of Jesus' birth, he cannot wait. He will not wait to see what this boy turns into. He will not wait to see if the prophecies of him being the the Messiah will come to fruition. He's not going to wait. The insecurity boils up. And instead, he begins to strive and scheme and strategize and use the first strike approach as he orders people to find the newborn. And when they don't tell him where he is, they then order an, he then orders an edict to kill anyone close to that child's age. See, our inability to wait, as seen in King Herod's life, will eat us alive from the inside out. Which is why the beginning of the, the Gospel of Luke then shows us a bunch of heroic folks that are brilliant when it comes to the art of waiting. Chapter 1, which was just read, begins with Zacharias, the high priest, stepping into the temple to prepare for worship when an angel appears to him and says, hey, you're going to have a son. In your old age, you'll have a son. Says that he's gripped with fear when the angel looks at him and says, do not be afraid. It all comes back to fear. Your prayers have been heard. You and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. Verse 14, he goes on and says, he'll be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their kids and the disobedient to wisdom and righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He looks back at the angel and he says, how? How are we going to conceive at this old age? And just to paraphrase what happens next, the angel kind of goes, hey, you're, you're talking to an angel, so nothing's off the table here, right? This is the miraculous. It's a story of fear, of promise, and then for Elizabeth, for Zechariah, a story of waiting. Months into Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy, an angel then visits her virgin cousin named Mary. He's got some news for Mary as well. Says, the Lord be with you, Mary. You're going to bear a child. It says in verse 29 of the same exact chapter, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. It always comes back to fear. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord your God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Paraphrase what happens next. Mary goes, how will this be? The angel said, you're talking to an angel. Nothing's off the table. Do not be afraid. It's a story of fear, but it's also a story of promise and then a story of waiting for Mary. 
Jesus is then born, and I just want to keep on driving this point home. We are, we are confronted right away in Luke with a bunch of heroes, humble heroes who understand the art of waiting. Jesus is born, and Joseph and Mary take him to be consecrated in the temple. But it's here that the new parents meet Simeon, an old gentleman who has promised to see the Savior of the world before his death. That day the scripture says he is moved by the spirit and so he gets up and he goes into the temple and gets to see with his old soul and his old eyes this king baby. And then Anna, a widow who has waited, who has promised she would see the same child, who has fasted and prayed and waited and now gets to see him. Two old souls who mastered the art of waiting. See, the first part of the gospel accounts, they're filled with these waiting people. And these waiting people, whether Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary or Simeon or Anna, they're representative of the remnant of Israel that waited for the Messiah to deliver freedom and redemption and restoration And I think one of the reasons that God introduces us to all these people right off the bat is to show us the contrast between King Herod, someone driven by fear, and those who understand the brilliance and the art of waiting. Hope, could it be that there is such a small difference between the humble heroes of the faith that we read about in the Herods of our history and that one of those small, small differences is the art of waiting. Waiting is what forms us. Waiting is what ensures we get the great instead of settling for what is simply good. Waiting is what makes space for dependency and communion with God. Waiting is what leads to freedom and salvation and shalom, the way that the scripture talks about. Could it be that there is a small difference between the humble heroes of our faith and the Herods of history, and one of those small differences is the art of waiting. That's why the scripture is filled with people that just cry out with a posture of waiting. In Psalm 130, we see this with the psalmist who sings out, My soul is waiting for the Lord. I count on his word. My soul is longing for the Lord more than a watchman for daybreak. Our spiritual experience, our spiritual maturity, and our tangible experience of God's grace and presence hangs on our ability to wait. And we hate it. But it hangs on it. Jewish writer Simone Weil says, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. And so what are the important attributes of spiritual waiting? Well, the first is that it's promise-filled. Spiritual waiting is promise-filled. In all of Luke chapter 1, these characters are waiting, but they're waiting from a, a posture of promise. The angel has promised Zechariah a child. The angel has promised Mary a child. The spirit has promised Simeon and Anna that they would see this child. I want you to hear this. All good, fruitful, and formative waiting comes from a promise. Waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. I know it often feels like that, but it's not. Waiting's never a movement from nothing to something. It's always a movement from something to something. Every Christmas season on the 26th of December, the eight of us, the Sadler crew, gets in our beat-up Silver Odyssey, and we drive 11 hours to Michigan, where our extended families live. 
And so we, we, it was okay. The eight-seater van was okay when, when the kids were smaller, but now three of them are my size. And so it just looks like a clown car as we load in and out. It's bad. And so we got our luggage, and we got food for the, the route back to Michigan. Eleven hours, and here's what we've done. We've mastered this drive. We have gotten this 11-hour drive with six different children down to two stops only. Two stops. It's impressive, right? Two stops. Unless I can't hold it, then it's three. But two stops, and we do it without any devices or any video games or any movies. And there's no logic behind this outside of when I give those things to my kids, they turn into monsters. I don't know what it is. They go, you remember gremlins? Like they go from cute gizmo to green slimy monster real fast with devices. And so we just go, no, not doing it. And for 11 hours we drive. And can I tell you this? Most ironic thing with six kids my four-year-old, who's my youngest, will only ask twice, how long till we get there? That's it. It's one of the most pleasant experiences during the Christmas season. It's the weirdest thing ever. But here's why it's so pleasant. Because it's rooted in promise. There's a promise there that these kids are hanging on to. There's a promise of Christmas at Uncle Bob's where we get to eat and open up gifts and sing carols like crazy. There's a promise of Christmas at Aunt Sharon's where there's going to be way more gifts and they're going to get spoiled. And then at the end of the night, they go back to their grandparents' house and it's just the grandkids and they get some extra special presents and intimate time with them. There's a promise of Christmas the next day at my parents' house where they get to see all the other cousins. And so you don't hear complaining and you don't see fear and you don't see anxiety in an 11-hour car ride. Instead, you hear this. You hear the rehearsing of the promise. What are we going to get? How's this going to look? I wonder if we'll see what happened last year happen again this year. It's just a rehearsal of the promise over and over and over for 11 hours. The only way to wait is to wait from promise. Now, some of you in here right now, you are in the thick of sickness. There are health issues. You are waiting for test results. And the reality is you will either be plagued by fear and anxiety and uncertainty Or you will wade through a lot of those real emotions while rehearsing the promise that there will be a day where there is no more tears, no more pain. The old order of things has passed away and the new has come. There will be a day of redemption and renewal and you'll rehearse that and you'll talk about it and you'll remind yourself and you'll preach to yourself again and again and again. Some of you are waiting in the thick of worry and concern for a friend or a child or waiting for IEP results, wondering who's going to help and support. You go through that in a really heavy way or you'll go through a lot of those real emotions rehearsing the promise that Jesus actually loves your kid more than you do. That Jesus actually has a future in mind for your kid and thinks about it more often than you do. Some of us in in here are in a funk wondering why that last role or that last job didn't work out the way that you thought it would. We wake up in the middle of the night wondering if we'll ever do something that's more significant than that last thing because, man, I thought that last thing was going to be more significant than it turned out to be. And you'll wonder and fret and worry and daydream. Or you'll go through some of those real emotions rehearsing the promise that Jesus actually values the process just as much as that next job that the present matters and that all your significance is not found in what you do. It's found in what he's already done for you. 
There's a small difference between the heroes of the scripture and the Herods of our history. I'm just imploring you to just ask, could it be that one of those small differences is the spiritual act of waiting? But it's got to be promise-filled. Secondly, it's got to be active. See, there's not much worse than having a packed-out day, knowing there's things to get done, and as you shift from meeting one to meeting two, you jump on that train because you're in a hurry, and as you roll off, you all of a sudden look up and realize, shoot, I've done it. I was on autopilot. I thought this was my train. It's not my train. There is a different train on my tracks. This was not supposed to be the train that I got on. And you, there's nothing you can do, though, right? And so at that point in time, if you're anything like me, you just sit down. And you kind of check out passively until that train door opens again. And you can get out and move on with your day and the busyness and trying to get to the place that you now know you're going to be late to. But you sit there. And you just wait. But that's a a passive waiting. And that's not the type of waiting we see in Luke 1 with these people. What we find in the scripture in Luke 1 is not a passive waiting, but an active waiting. If you read through Luke 1, you see that Mary's singing. She's celebrating what God is doing in the process. Zechariah has a song. There's celebration. There's worship. There's communing together as Mary meets with Elizabeth for Simeon, there's, there's an active move towards the temple. It's all very embodied. There's action happening in the process of waiting. The second characteristic that's so important about spiritual waiting is that it's active. It's not passive. Henri Nouwen says the secret of waiting is the, is the faith that the seed has already been planted. That something has already begun. Active waiting means to be present fully to the moment in the conviction that something is happening where you are, and that you want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, who believes that this moment is actually the moment. Waiting people are patient people. The word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live in the situation out to the full and believe that something is hidden and will manifest itself to us. Impatient people, hope, impatient people are always expecting the real thing to happen somewhere else. This is one of the diseases of the city that we love. It's all, we are plagued by people on our left and right that are waiting for something to happen in that next city, in that next job, in that next relationship, in that next stage of life. And so the majority of us walk around lonely going, is this person going to stay? Because they're impatient people that have not yet learned that right now is the moment. There's a small difference between the heroes of the faith and the heroes of history. I think one of those small differences is the the spiritual act of waiting. But it's got to be promise-filled. It's got to be active and last. It's got to be open-ended. I want you to imagine this old man, Simeon. He's sitting one day in the temple courts. And it says that he senses the, the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Which again, you wish kind of there was more concreteness to what that means. But that's what we get. The prompting from the Holy Spirit. And it suggests that this man is going to meet the Messiah before he dies. And the words that we get from Simeon is he will be the glory of Israel. And he'll be the light to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews. That's it. Years prior to this moment, that's what he gets. That would drive me bonkers. If that is all I get, not when, not how, not why, 
Not a name, not an age, not a day, not what salvation actually means or is going to look like for me. All he gets is just that little promise. If Simeon is anything like me, that promise is not concrete enough. I want to know how this thing is going to flesh out. Partially because I'm a control freak. But I want to know. See, this, this is the type of spiritual waiting that, that forms us. It's, it's not a concrete waiting. It's an open-ended waiting. And the open-ended waiting is hard for us because we tend to want something very concrete. We wish to have something. Something very specific. I, I wish to have this job. Or I, I wish to have this type of partner. Or I wish to have this type of apartment. Or I wish to have a, a successful ministry with thousands of people. Much of our waiting is filled with wishes, but what happens is that our waiting gets very entangled with those wishes. And for this reason, a lot of our waiting isn't open-ended, like Zachariah's waiting, or Mary's waiting, or Simeon, or Anna. Instead, waiting becomes a way to control our concrete future, a little bit more like Herod. We want the future to go in a very specific direction, and if it doesn't happen, we're disappointed. We can even slip into despair. It's part of why we have such a hard time waiting. We want to do things that will make the desired events take place so we know how our future is going to flesh itself out. But the biblical figures were able to wait with an open-ended posture because they were filled with hope, not wishes. This is really different. Hope is trusting that something will be fulfilled, but fulfilled not just according to your wishes. It's remembering that we're kids of God, not God himself. Uh, Amanda, when she's talking to our kids, will always tell the kids that when she, she thought about her wish list for the man that would sweep her off her feet, the, the man would be tall and blonde hair and blue eyes. And I have to remind her that only when she stopped wishing and instead hoped for God's best could he give her something beyond her comprehension or imagination. <laughs> but seriously, I want you to listen to... I want you to coughing. I got you coughing. I want you to hear Mary's words, though, here. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let what you have done be done to me. She's saying, I don't know what all this means, but I trust that good things will happen. It's a declaration of faith that says, I'm not going to try and control this outcome. I'm going to believe that you actually love me more than I love me. I'm going to believe that you want me to flourish actually more than I want myself to flourish. I'm going to believe that you want my kids to flourish more than I actually want my kids to flourish. There is a very small difference between the heroes of our faith and the heroes of history. And that small difference comes to the spiritual act of waiting. Now, we'll end here. All of these incredible heroes. They're heroes not because they're perfect. They're heroes not because they're really good. They're heroes because they all point us towards something. Mary's promise-filled waiting points us to something. Simeon's open-ended waiting points us to something. And I know that the birth of Jesus and the moment where Jesus is on his face praying in the Garden of Gethsemane couldn't feel more different. But they are so deeply tied. Because it's in, the, it's in the garden 
after Jesus, right before Jesus is betrayed, that he is on his face feeling the weight of the world. He's feeling anxiety and concern and fear. The fullness of his humanity is on display. And it's in this moment, it's in this moment, that it is a promise that drives him towards the cross. A promise that all things will be made new, that his father loves him dearly, that he will sit on the right hand of the father. And it's in this moment that he is actively waiting, praying, being honest with God, because he knows that's where the father meets him, in his honesty, right? Praying, God, if there's any other way, I don't want to die like this. That's active waiting. It's in this moment, there's an open-ended type of waiting where he goes, God, I don't want to die like this. I'm going to be brutally honest with you, Papa. But if this is what you have in mind, then you do what you're going to do because I know all good things will come from your work and your ways. It is a waiting from Jesus that allows us now to celebrate this season of waiting with a spiritual waiting that is, that is active that is resting on the promise that he will make all things new, that the old order has passed away, that the new comes. And that allows us to be open-handed with it. And so as we celebrate communion together today, we celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of the one who we wait for. Advent is the time where we wait and to celebrate Christmas and his birth of the past, but it's also this time where we wait in the midst of our brokenness for the time where he will come again and make all things new. And as you take the bread today, you take that bread that represents the broken body of Jesus that was broken so that the world might taste wholeness again. And as you dip it into the cup, you dip it into a cup that represents the new covenant The old covenant is if you do all of these things right, you might gain access to God. It's all about morality. The new covenant says there's nothing you can do. This is all about who God is. There is nothing you can do that's good enough to earn the love of the Father. There's nothing you can do that's bad enough to lose it. It's finished because of who Jesus is and who God is seen in Jesus. I want you to understand this today. You are so loved by God. The one who made the world sees you and loves you and holds both your brokenness and your beauty together at once and celebrates your life in the midst of whatever you're in right now. Now last thing, last thing, and those that are giving communion can come. The end of this passage is the best because what happens, what happens is that Elizabeth decides she's going to visit her cousin. And she walks in, and you know what it says happens. As she walks in to see, or as Mary walks in to see Elizabeth, what happens? Anybody know? What? Nancy knows the baby leaps in the womb and says, all of this just straight miraculous. You're either crazy for believing this or it demands your life. Leaps in the womb. I want you to see these people make space for the waiting. This is why this church, this is why the Sunnyside Church, this is why the Spanish-speaking community is so important because what we're doing here is not consuming more religious information. What we're doing here is not getting some good content. What we're doing here is not listening to some good music. We come together and we break bread together to make space for waiting. 
for people that don't have that space elsewhere, for people that got to keep all of the agony, all the grief, all the pain inside and deal with it on their own, we make space here so that we can do this together the way that Elizabeth and Mary do. That's what the church was always intended to be. And so church, as you come, know that he loves you. Know that he's gone to the cross for you so that you can make space for others. 